0: Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr.
1: Funkenstein.
0: Round two, Never Nervous Dwayne Purvis. Oh, a new one. I like that one. <laughs> I Remember like Purvis- that one better than Purv <laughs>
2: Remember Purvis Ellison? Did, did I ask you guys yeah. this the last time we did this?
0: I don't think you did Purvis Ellison, no
2: never nervous Purvis. So a lot of people have reasons for why they go to whatever college they went to, right? My reasoning for going to Brandeis, literally, in the late 90s, NBA basketball teams used to practice at local universities. It was a thing. And the Celtics practiced at Brandeis. So when I went on the school tour, when I was a junior or senior or something in high school, I'm walking through the hallways and I see the whole Celtics team right there. Paul Pierce was there, Antoine Walker, never nervous Purvis Ellison. And and they're super friendly, right? Like, they, you know, it's college kids. I and mean, They're only a few years older. So it was so welcoming. They're like, you know, they're like, yeah, you know, you can talk to them, right? You talk to them. You can, you're going to go here. You should go here. It's a good school. So I made my decision right there based off of meeting the Celtics
0: <laughs> at their practice facility. It had nothing
2: to do with Brandeis.
0: <laughs> it is funny just how some of the things that should not make you choose a university or a field of study influences yeah. you into that path. You at know, that age. Yeah, I mean, my daughter when she was the the oldest when she was choosing a school, she she applied A and M and was kind of put into the second tier of acceptance, and uh, she didn't like that. But when she started looking at her next school, she said, "No, no, I want the the Saturday Division One experience, big time football on campus." You know, so that was okay. Now we're down to whatever universities that that meets. Yeah, you know, and really shouldn't be why you choose a school, but I understand why the presence of universities use sports is what they call what the, the window to the university, you know, that it does, it is does have meaning.
2: Well, I'm looking forward to going to, um, an A&M game, Tim. I think you said it's November well, 19th or something like that. I'm I'm going to do it. I mean, I'm in hundred percent against UMass.
0: Yeah. Well, we definitely need to do that. So, um, and now, now we're transitioning to Dwayne who does not have any interest in sports. So <laughs> we'll, uh,
1: a m games are fun though you don't even have to like football to like an a and m football game
0: oh that's that's true i mean the tailgating now, which wasn't a big deal when dwayne and I were in school but oh. ta- just tailgating we go up there and we'll tailgate with no intention of ever going to the game just sitting out there and talking to people and you know meeting folks it's a, it just
1: it's a whole it's, day event oh yeah absolutely yeah so and yeah i I did that for a, a reunion not too long ago it was really nice.
2: Let's talk ESG. I want to talk about the Carbon Expo. Um, The the topic of of ESG, environmental, social governance, for those who aren't familiar with the term, um, is something that Dwayne is laser focused on. I think Tim and I, by default, um, have had to become more focused on this. And I've taken a real curiosity to it as more and more money starts to flow in. And larger operators in particular are looking to uh, identify what the energy transition looks like for them. So, Dwayne, tell us a little bit about the Carbon Expo, and then let's jump into some of the insights you've seen, even since the last time you came on as we trend here in
1: 2022. So, Tim and I are about the same vintage, and uh, I've been in the industry 26 years now. I saw the world starting to change again. It's changed a couple times on my watch. And I... Uh, but I was seeing the energy transition differently than everybody else. It seemed like my whole industry our whole industry took this defensive posture. the The estimates say that we're going to take it's going take three to six trillion dollars of investment per year. The pathways to an energy transition require geothermal and solar and wind and carbon sequestration. We can do that. We know all that. So it looks to me like that the energy transition is a fantastic opportunity. The the world is creating the demand. We've got the skills, we've got the assets, we've got the science to take advantage of it, and we should be leaning into the opportunity. And that's why I made Carbon Expo. So look, it's, it's, it's a good thing to do from a moral ethical scientific thing to do 100% we need to reduce the amount of of CO2 that we litter into the air but that really has never gotten uh industry very motivated right yeah but there's an opportunity so if the world's going to pay for it man let's do it it's a it's a win-win all the way around
0: so the the expo itself is it? It's a conference. Uh, it was kind of a traditional uh, conference.
1: Oh, that kind of hurts, Tim. That kind of hurts. Oh. <laughs> just, try to, <laughs> just try to get the definition, right? No. So we're doing. It is a virtual conference. Uh, I was recording a promo video for it yesterday, and the first slide was a picture of Zach Galifianakis between two ferns. So your most virtual conferences are like uh, community access television, right? Except not as funny as Zach Galifianakis. And uh, most ESG conferences are a bunch of talking heads. And I yeah. and a little slide there about uh, Ron Burgundy, you know, who is, uh, yeah. <laughs> I think they call it yogging. I'm not sure. But, but these are people talking Some in abstracts. This is what we got to do. Never mind that. Carbon Expo is a a virtual conference, social media style, and focused on how to get stuff done. It's a business exposition for oil and gas in the energy transition. So some of the cool things we can do um, is you can search the attendance list so you don't have to worry about randomly running into people walking around the exhibit hall. We have a, a virtual breakout room for lunch. We'll have a couple dozen rooms organized by theme. So instead of sitting with some random person at a at a ten top table and hoping you have something in common with them, you go find a table of people who are going who are interested in methane emissions or Bitcoin mining or uh, plugging wells, and you can network with people with common interests. We're gonna have a uh, virtual happy hour. I, I I keep that in my bottom drawer. Oh, here we go. <laughs> Can we do this? Is, this? is this is like No, like? No, go
0: ahead. ahead. The product, yeah, the product placement, Ooh, I that's like a, it. What's a crown actually, reserve?
1: Actually, my real favorite's TX. TX is my real favorite. This was a gift, but I keep it in my bottom drawer. I th- so we have a virtual happy hour for an hour and a half. For those, not,
0: for those not watching on YouTube, oh, uh, Dwayne held up a uh, crown royal reserve bottle for to uh, <laughs> entice Jeremy and I away from the, the show here. Go ahead. All right. Thanks, <laughs> Dwayne.
1: But you keep it in your bottom drawer. Gave it in my bottom drawer. Actually, truth be told, it's the top drawer, but never mind that. Um, because uh, for occasions like this, with BYOB, 90 minutes, choose a room based on your geographic area. If you're working in West Texas, go hang out in the West Texas breakout room for a while. If you working in California, we'll hang out in the um, small live video breakout room in California and then the the other thing is that all the presentations are going to be focused on something a little bit more practical, and then they're going to be available for six months after so you 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 can come as one day conference uh, you can bebop around video chat with exhibitors, video chat with other attendees, uh watch a pre-recorded video, do a live q and a, go back and search, and if you miss something, come back on Monday. So we're trying, we're trying to make it as, at least as good as a, as a live conference with, uh, with no Omicron. Yeah. When, uh, when is it? March the 4th. CarbonExpo.us will tell you about it. Okay. And we're going to be on March, march the 4th.
2: Let's March 4th with this ESG Carbon Expo. Ha ha anyways so uh, i'll be in i'll be in Canada uh, then, but i'd still like to to attend if if that's at all possible. Yeah. I wanted to talk about uh the market in oil and gas and ESG and this is an observation. I had a meeting with a top twenty domestic operator last week um, and I had sent them some information on the ESG solution I wanted to approach them about. This was the most educated and researched I've ever seen a group coming into that meeting. Whatever information was passed on to them relating to ESG, they devoured and they did extra research and they came very prepared, which shows me the level of seriousness amongst large operators is is there. I mean, it was really, really impressive to watch the the caliber of people, most of them with advanced degrees, a lot of VP, director, C-levels saying, "This, this this is the priority. Yep. And and it was really, really kind of cool to see that because oftentimes it's, it's the opposite, Tim, we're pushing, we're pushing, 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 yeah, yeah. put this yeah. on the table and they grab it. It's like, Oh, cool. All right.
0: Yeah. Well, well it's this is- like- I, I was just going to echo that with the, you know, uh, we talked to uh, Jeremy Sweek a couple of weeks ago and you know, we, what we kind of found out from him or what we discussed is some companies are out there going to be very aggressive and upfront and, and uh, kind of, Leaders, but he said most of them just don't want to be last. So they're gonna they're gonna <laughs> just <be> <laughs> they're gonna let everybody kind of pull pull them through. Yeah. So yeah. they're not last, but they they're they're also not gonna go be first. And I think well, that's the
1: nature of leadership, though, isn't it? Right. If there's and there are some folks who really see this as a priority. If they really see it as a valuable thing. There are other people who resent it, but the fact is. It is a fact of life. You cannot get away from it. It's, it's coming to every aspect, particularly of finance, but, it, but even indirectly through uh, banking and insurance um, and our license to operate on the line if it's becoming the cost of doing business. Remember, at this point, we think HSE is just fine. That's just it. You just do it. But back at the beginning of our career, man, oh, H- HSE was stupid. Right. HSE was an annoyance. And it'll be the same way in another 10 or 15 years. ESG is just going to be de rigueur. I do want to add there's one
0: other category I think you left out of the the two that you put in there, Dwayne, and that is those that are just making big statements about it, but not actually doing anything. The greenwashing.
1: The greenwashing is a great point, but it's only a temporary strategy you the, you're under all of a sudden you find yourself under pressure, and so what do you do? Justify oh, we're really good actually we're really we've been doing this really well, but that that's a first step, but it's not a sustainable strategy. You start yep. making promises well we're going to do X, y, z. well, you, people are going to ask you about it at the next quarterly call, and in two years they're going to be asking about it again, so whether you care about it or not, you're still going to be accountable to do it. Yep,
2: once you make the statement of of uh you know, net net zero emissions by 2045, you then have to actually have an executable plan to hit that target. If you just put it out there because it's something that you think you were supposed to do, that shit's not going to fly.
0: Well, I think what I've seen is people make the statement and then don't put the teeth behind it. Some, you know, and I've, I've seen a couple of places where it's Hey, we're gonna be net zero by whatever, or we're gonna yeah. reduce it by 50% by 2025. And and mm-hmm. it's a statement at the board level, CEO makes at the board level, and mm-hmm. it's a headline grabber, but they really haven't put the investment throughout the organization to be able to achieve it.
1: And yeah, so and what they're gonna took- wind
0: up doing is they're gonna sell an asset in 2024 to meet their, to meet That's the right. requirements That's right. And
1: yeah, and just pass off to somebody else. And, and that is happening for sure. You know, there was a big New York, uh, it was Washington Post or New York times article that looked at EPA emissions data and found that Hillcorp was the, one of the worst emitters there is. And, uh-huh. and those are assets they bought from majors.
2: That's right. Yeah.
1: The, um, but the thing is that the, the circle is tightening. So Here's Hillcorp all of a sudden on the front page of national news. And, you know, the the thing that I think is going to be the biggest game changer is is the the EDF emissions satellite, uh, methane emissions satellite going up this year. Now, I, I haven't double checked this myself, but I understand it's extremely high resolution and extremely high sensitivity so that they'll be able to publish a map that says uh, where on your line, what spot in your yard is linking natural gas. And then this is gonna, there's gonna be third party accountability for it.
0: Yeah, Sarah Stogner, who was, uh, re- as we record today, was released yesterday. Thank you. That was one of her big things she mentioned and her her uh, thing was really looking forward to seeing that those satellite
1: images going up. Yeah, exactly. I've been studying the the flaring in Texas and uh, venting so in in theory we're supposed to report the volumes that we flare or vent over a certain number but there's a a lot of gas that doesn't have to be permit uh, permitted or reported at all and there are hundreds and hundreds of leases in texas who every month produce oil and report one mcf a day or one mcf for the month and they're just venting their gas right Wow. And, yeah.
2: So there's, there's two topics I want to jump on um, in, this, in this short session today. Um, and, and the first one I think is really relevant to something you said early on. You mentioned the defensiveness of the industry. And, and, and I think that this actually goes back a very long time, and it's going to be something that fundamentally will be hard to shift. This is why. If you think about the etymology. Of the oil and gas industry, marketing in oil and gas is something completely different than marketing to everybody else in the world. It's sales, <laughs> right? You don't actually have to market your product. People always want your product. I now love that. Sudden, now all of a sudden, you're eighty some idea. Yeah, I'm a marketing guy, not that not oil and gas marketing, like a real marketing rest right, of the world, right? Right. Right. Um, but but that's that's created this situation where all of a sudden, well, you've always wanted my product. You need my product, right? So then you feel like, okay, we're special. You need what I have, right? Now, all of a sudden, somebody's telling me, I don't need what you have. The industry's response is, yes, you do. And it's like, OK, yeah, right. But that's not the way we need to start this conversation, right? You're feeling threatened because people we are not taking this away, right? We're just trying yeah. to find a, an appropriate right. means. That's one, the defensiveness and the posture. So if you want to talk about that, go ahead. And then I've got another. point.
1: No, I, I agree. And it's the wrong response entirely. I mean, it's not it's not wrong that we're going to be using oil and gas for a long time. The question is how much and how? And for those of us in the industry, the question is the trajectory of how it turns. The the full range of possible oil demand forecast from the IEA shows um, a long plateau to one or 2% decline or at the most extreme, a 5% decline per year in oil consumption. 5% decline per year is not really very high. And, it, and we still exit 2050 in something like 23 million barrels of oil per day. Now, it was, it was not one that is not really going anywhere, but the inherent natural decline of existing oil fields is about 5%. Maybe yeah. it's six. So if our demand is declining at five or 6%, well, then we don't need to add new reserves, add, add, uh, add new fields. We don't need to explore. If we're declining at 2% or 3%, instead of growing at 1% or 1.5%, we need a whole lot less exploration. And that rearranges the industry. The production engineers, they're going to shut the doors. The landmen, the geophysicists, and the explorationists are going to be the first out the door. But the second thing, natural gas is a totally different story. Natural gas has real legs. I'm a I'm a, a bull. Yeah. But in both cases, we have to change the way we use it. The change the way we do it. Um, but the good thing is, we're you know, we're in the right position to to clean up the fuel. So the, the theme for Carbon Expo this year is the dawn of counterstream. So upstream, midstream, downstream, flow our products down where we make good and valuable things, but we make this pollutant, this like plastic semi-permanent molecule that goes into the air. Well, if we capture that and counterflow it back to where it began, all of a sudden you can have the benefits without the pollution. Hmm. So uh, this this is a term I I coined. I call it the counterflow business to take our waste products back to the beginning. Whether it comes from um, carbon taxes, cap and trade, or voluntary carbon markets, which are growing. There's going to be plenty of demand, and we've got the science, we've got the skills, we've got the assets. So we, did, if we add this segment to our business, then, we, then both are true. Right? You continue using oil and gas, yep, and in fact, you can also pay us, and we'll clean it up for you. You can have the benefit of using our fantastic product, and we'll clean it up for you.
2: I mean, that's the approach that, that needs to be taken. The, good stuff, Dwayne. The, the final point I wanted to make is around um, the talent that the oil and gas industry is able to attract, or lack thereof. And that's all I really need to say on that topic. <laughs> however, <You> know, however, <laughs> if oil and gas companies start positioning themselves as energy transition leaders, ESG leaders, EV, yes. y- you throw different buzzwords out there, cut some of the pride of just being an oil company, you will attract. The best of the best who are excited about an energy transition. Well, and that's,
1: listen, I'm, I'm studying uh, sustainable energy at Johns Hopkins right now. And, and there are some people in my cohort and in my, my classes who really are all in renewables. But mostly it's all in, I want to make this happen. Yeah. There's no serious discussion of an energy transition, which is a long, complex, multifaceted, multi-step process, but there's no route that doesn't involve oil and gas. Right? The, the question is how? The, you know, the, the SPE, the Society of Petroleum Engineers, and the AAPG are looking at a merger. Hmm. Right? My belief is that we need to change the name of our society. Of this joint society. We're no longer petroleum engineers and petroleum geologists. We are subsurface engineers and subsurface geologists because we know all about drilling and completions for four, form, four different kinds of geothermal. We know all about um, pipelines and injection and geomechanics and pore space and conservation of the energy for carbon sequestration. We know. Uh, how to make hydrogen in a fire flood. We've got multiple skills that are essential to this process, both directly in uh, the oil and gas part of the transition and in the adjacent parts that are going to grow piecemeal and part-wise over the next 30 or 40 years. So we, I agree, man. You can't uh, get people to sign up. I had to change the name of the class I teach at TCU. Yep, yep. And the, 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 the mandate to me from the university was a third of the class was supposed to be about sustainable energy. It took me a little bit to figure it out, but a third of the class is about sustainable energy. now.
2: Yeah, I'd be, I'd be curious maybe to sit in on, on one of those classes and audit it, see, see what you talk about, see what the
0: engagement looks like. So I, no. I, I, the, uh, you know, the transition is, is interesting, but I, I want to go back to... Uh, You know, we had Dr. Spath on in December and he stopped short of, you know, we're not changing the name of the department, but he did echo a lot of what you said is that, hey, we know the subsurface petroleum engineers, as they are now, are the ones that know how to do all the things that you just mentioned. So it's interesting that, you know, the thought process is all there, but you have, uh, you know, University of Oklahoma changing the name of their department, like, Mm. you know, and, uh. What is it? Uh, Total changed their name to Total Energies mm-hmm. um, just to kind BP of. It it, before them. So that's happening. Uh, yeah. And it's really kind yeah. of starting to change the focus. Of course, BP tried it in the 90s with Beyond Petroleum. I'm not sure <laughs> that that ever really took, but.
1: Well, SME did the same thing. I was just went to the letters, whatever. Yeah. I, I, I want to. Go ahead. No, I just get frustrated with. Um, well, this is back to your marketing point, Jeremy. I get frustrated with the, the silly hats um that people have to put on sometimes to to look good. Yeah. Well you it mean, goes I back to hat. That's my whole company's model.
2: <laughs> I actually branded this Red Sox hat with my own logo right <laughs> hey,
1: now. I branded my vest.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Not Tim. Tim's just got an A M shirt. No big deal.
0: No, no, no. This is just a regular old shirt. This time Razorbacks? No, no. Not It's kind of actually it is kind of more of a crimson color than it is uh, a maroon, but I see it. But uh, so, Dwayne, you know, you you put out a lot of uh, content on LinkedIn. That's where I receive it anyway. You probably put out in other locations. But um, one that recently and I think this is kind of a a point I wanted to come back to right now as we record this, there's a saltwater geyser out in West Texas. I guess we're on day 14 of this thing erupting. Um in what I think what I understand to be an old abandoned well uh the old Gulf oil well, which is now you know Chevron and so on um but you did a a paper on abandonment or orphaned wells abandonment uh, you know abandoned wells, I think this is going to be an interesting topic moving forward as we start yeah. these declines there's hundreds of thousands of orphaned wells out there and improperly abandoned wells that are not getting the attention that they should have.
1: You know the we were drilling, uh, and then abandoning wells long before we knew how to do it, and we didn't have good controls on plugging wells until the 50s. So there was a, almost 100 years of wells that were plugged no by sticking, I, I've read, um, branches yeah. or burlap sacks down, right? Yeah. I, believe, and, I believe it, yeah. Okay, that was. That was state of the art, I guess. That was the standard. Um, but what we had, and, and those kinds of wells, man, I don't, I don't really have a lot of blame for the people. Um, but since 1990, the rules have changed. And I'm sorry, 86. 86, the rules changed. And before that, from about the 50s to, to 86, you had to plug a well within two years of stop of production. For practical purposes now, it's been allowed to run on for infinity. So over the years, I've seen more and more idle wells in portfolios. Yeah. And it didn't really matter in in 95 and 96. You know, the production was still high, relatively high. Um, We could still get good money for a salvage value. And um, the the prospect was so far off with the present value anyway, it just wasn't material. But last year, I had a wake-up call. It's gotten worse, right? Production has gotten worse and worse. Uh, costs have gotten higher. Prices have gone higher, but costs have gone higher almost as much. Um, and this stockpile of uh, abandonment liabilities has been building. So last year, I had um, uh, two uh, assignments in particular. One where half the wells were idle, and the other where two-thirds of the wells were idle. hmm What I calculated was that um, the the economic life that remained was about 10 times as long as the distributable economic life. Which is to say, if you look at all the liabilities, you start at the end of life and you you come to present time, you had to spend 90-ish percent of the time of the future productive life just to pay for the plugging liabilities.
0: So hold on, let me just, I'm going <clears> to <throat> paraphrase or reword it just yeah, from my worry. brain. So you now have eight years, you have to produce it for another eight years just so you can abandon it if you were to abandon it right now?
1: No, then, the economic life is eight years and, and that's about right for one of the assignments. There were about eight months of cash that you could put away and keep and distribute and use before every penny had to be dedicated to abandonment. Wow. So I I made, I wrote this white paper about a a new economic term I call holdback. And the idea is what period of time does 100% of cash flow need to be dedicated to plugging liabilities if you're going to plug them? And what period of time, distributable life, can you pocket the net income? And what I'm seeing, because what I found is this declining cash flow that gets really narrow over time requires. Five, 10, 15 years of dedicated 100% of profits go to plugging liabilities if you're going to plug them. Does that make wow. sense? Yeah, it no, makes sense. I understand,
0: I understand that, but I can see why it's just, well, I mean, I guess the incentive for the, the operator is I'm just going to sell this to the next guy and let them plug
1: it. You no, know, that used to be the case. And yeah. over the years, I have become more and more adamant with my clients that you have to look at this if you buy it you better plan on burying it and the clients have, have increasingly paid attention they've been increasingly concerned it's been about 50 50. but it's only going one direction right? there's no probability that operators stop being concerned about plugging liability or purchasers stop being concerned about probability the only direction this goes is absolutely everyone factors plugging liability into the cost.
2: This, this is an interesting segue to Tim for later this month. Um, my friend, Eric Bruzowitz used to work at Hawkwood energy, a number of different EMPs, and he's launching a company that is only doing work around P wells uh-huh. in the state of Colorado. I think maybe somebody for you to, to speak with, but it's, it's so niche, right? Like it is this one sweet spot, right? It here, is right now. But you, you go to a company like that has a couple thousand wells, I mean you know they've got sixty or seventy of these wells that are orphaned, maybe more they need to take care of this problem. they just don't know what to do right it's 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 a quagmire um, and it's interesting to see the way that companies approach it. They have to do something they don't really want to spend money, but they have to do it anyway um, okay. and and that's sort of where the the p a model is yes
1: yeah. so this this is a time bomb, not just because we deferred it, and hundred percent of the cash flow has got to be dedicated for a long time um. But you, what you've got are these huge, huge liabilities. It was a couple of years ago. I was working on a, a project. Um, it was a couple thousand wells with a shared gas plant. So you had this massive fixed cost to cover. I dialed the allocation of expenses from more variable to more fixed. Didn't change the total. I didn't move it all to fixed. I moved some of the variable cost to fixed cost. And it triggered the group economic limit. And all of a sudden, you had a $100 million liability for something mm-hmm. that was cash flow positive um, by several million dollars a month right now. Right? And the when you get to that position, <laughs> you think it's going to be pretty cheap, right? Well, at most, I spend $25,000 to plug a well. Sure, but it's a log normal distribution, and your average is going to be significantly higher than your most common. Mm. and twenty five thousand is pretty cheap, right because right now it's a low demand, low margin business, low volume, low margin. Mm. If this um, time bomb explodes, if there's a change in regulation, if there is um, something like a, a couple major companies factor this in, to their uh, ESG um, plans and their, their discussions publicly. Well, then you're going to see demand go up and costs will go up. And then all of a sudden it, it becomes a um, feedback loop. And that I'm, I'm really right now it's hard to make a business, but at some point there's going to be a trigger and, and plugging abandonment is going to be a good business.
2: Interesting. Tim, uh, let's wrap this up here. Mr. Perv, tell us, where do we find out about the Carbon Expo? I want to attend. Can you tell us um, where we go to find that, sign up? What does it cost? Any details? Who's welcome? Who's who? Uh, you know, who's going to be yes. there? All that fun stuff.
1: I'd love to have you guys there. I'd, um, people can sign up to attend. Right now, the cost is $45 a person.
2: Okay.
1: I'm trying to get people there. Uh, the Because the, the more people we have, the more beneficial it is sure. um booths are a couple hundred dollars a piece uh, you can sponsor a live video breakout room host a live video breakout room for just like 250 dollars. you can um sponsor or advertise uh, and would love love to have you we're looking to get upstream midstream and downstream folks there you know that at this point yeah. the downstream are the uh um, are the people who create the product and uh yeah. All right, and CarbonExpo.us is the, Carbon, is the URL.
2: CarbonExpo.us. That's CarbonExpo.us. Forty-five bucks Thursday, March fourth. I'm going to attend. I'm definitely going to blast this out to my network. Re- really intrigued about this. I think we're going to see a rash of these types of shows. But um, you, you leading it from this perspective, I think, is going to be of, of major value. And I loved having you on here a second time. Uh, let's let's definitely keep in touch and, and push this message forward.
1: Hey, thanks so much, guys. Always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks, Dwayne. Good luck. Yeah.
0: See ya.